everybody. Welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Just dropping a quick episode here solo because I've recently seen two really fantastic 1970s crime films, both available on Amazon Prime and maybe other streamers. If you're ever in the mood to get your grainy, cinematic 1970s heist Jones scratched, this double feature bill will blow the carbon out of your cylinder heads and unbutton the top three buttons of your denim work shirt. Now, full disclosure, these two films come from opposite sides of the cinematic tracks. One of them is a little bit in the so bad it's good category, although it actually really does have a lot more to recommend than just the unintentional humor and the plot holes so big you could drive a Rolls Royce through them. The other, though, is a classic hidden gem, a diamond in the rough, lying in plain sight, 20,000 leagues under the sea. So let's drive and dive, you'll see the puns make sense later, into two highly recommended crime classics for your 1970s edification and education. Yeah. Woo! You know, I never met a woman who gave me any trouble. I get them any way I please and never stayed around for tomorrow. Well, I'll be gone. Moving on. Should I be gone? In 60 seconds. Now, first up, if you're a fan of films like American Movie and The Room, films that are either about or by would-be filmmakers whose ambitions sometimes outstrip their abilities, then my first recommendation to you is a 1974 film called Gone in 60 Seconds, produced, written, directed, and starring the wonderfully named Henry Blight Toby Hallecky. Now, if you're like me, when you hear Gone in 60 Seconds, you think of the 2000 Nicolas Cage, Angelina Jolie car heist film. I didn't do it for the money. I did it for the cars. Well, it turns out that's a remake of the 1974 original, which I didn't even know existed. Halicki was a scion of an upstate New York garage-owning family that has run a business called Hallecky Garage since 1919, when Toby Hallecky's Austrian immigrant father opened it up in Dunkirk, New York. Toby Hallecky is one of those fringe Hollywood characters, kind of ends up telling us more about Hollywood itself than sometimes the established players do. So a little bit about him. He was one of 13 children, and when he was 15, he moved to Los Angeles to try and make his fortune, which he eventually did. He opened up a garage. He had an insane car collection. He had a legendary toy collection. And apparently he dabbled in real estate and he became fairly wealthy. And he decided to make a movie on his own. So he spent about $150,000 to make and distribute a film entirely by himself, tagging his friends and family to appear in it. And although the results are kind of amateurish at best, there is a really undeniable charm and style to things. There's a sort of filmic verve that perhaps only the brash imagination and legally dubious grounding of Toby Halicki could have wrought large on the silver screen. So a little bit about the film. Toby Halicki plays the incredibly named Mandrian Pace, who is a 
mild-mannered insurance adjuster by day turned epic car thief by night. And the plot hinges around the fact that Pace, he's dragooned into stealing 48 high-performance sports cars in a matter of days by a South American drug lord. And he's got to, you know, Halicki and his crew have to steal these cars or else. And the or else is implied, you know, a violent and horrible death. So that kicks off what plot there is. And as I said, no one in the film is a trained actor. And the film starts with this kind of almost procedural look at how to steal a car. And the images are are very compelling. And not just because we're in that kind of grainy 70s cinematic universe, but there is a certain kind of verve. There's a style. There's a flair to things. And that lasts just until the dialogue kicks in, which took me a little minute to focus on because I'm like, what, what is going on here? The dialogue is basically like a voiceover narration that's laid over scenes. And that's supposed to be the dialogue that's going on within the scene. But we're not seeing people talking. We're just sort of seeing other types of images. So it's a little off-putting. And that's the first moment where it kind of sinks in where you're like, oh, okay, this is like some low-budget weirdness here. But I'm kind of still with it because I don't know where this is going. Hey, Adley, how come you never get called at 5 o'clock in the morning? Because I live right. Well, I'll fix your living habit. Tomorrow morning, you can get up at 5 and start tearing down that truck to find out how come he hit the train. Okay, if Stanley helps me. I think two years in the Army gave him brain damage. Hey, hey, I'll learn the business next week. I don't even know how these switchovers work. Well, Stanley, it goes like this. Taylor Webb buys a wrecked car. We cut it up and save the serial numbers, the engine and trans, and junk the rest. There are actual dialogue scenes that kick in later, and they are remarkable for the lack of acting ability displayed by anyone on screen. But again, it's got a certain something. It's It's got enough to keep you going. So once the plot kicks into high gear, we're basically building towards the entire kind of last third of the film, which is a 40-minute car chase. Yes, 40 minutes long. Is this car chase the French Connection car chase? Or the, to my mind, superior live and die in L.A. car chase? No, it's not. Uh, But it's a 40-minute car chase during which, like, 93 cars were wrecked. And Toby Halicki, brilliantly, it's not like he went and got permits or, you know, proper safety equipment or actual stunt people per se. One of the sources that I could find on the film said that he would literally just kind of drive out to an area of Los Angeles, set up some orange traffic cones, and then actually pull off like an entire automotive stunt on the streets without any permitting with bystanders just kind of gawking and sometimes nearly getting their lives ended through the stunts gone awry. Um, And he would just smash and crash cars up in public without permits in order to get whatever shots he wanted to get. So that's part of the fun of watching the film is if you read a little bit about it and you read a little bit about Toby Halicki and then watch the movie, nothing's going to be spoiled for you. I think it's going to be uh, heightened because you're going to be <laughs> you're going to be more aware of how you're watching, what you're watching, and it's just it's just going to kind of blow your mind that this guy pulled this off. Here's a list in the code names of the cars we're going to need. What was that black football player that uh, played for the Green Bay Packers? Remember we handled loss on his trucks at the distributing company? Oh, yeah. You mean Willie Davis? Yeah, that's him. Davis. Yeah. He drives a burgundy rolls. Here's his address. Now, I want you to have as much of this information ready as you can by the time we get back on Sunday. Now, here's how we'll handle it. 
What are the, uh, the first two are Stutzes? Let's see, I, I codenamed them uh, Donna and Karen. Yeah. You better, you'll have to redo this so we can read it. Yeah. But just go down the line here and codename them. I want all of them listed this way. Okay, I'll all put it in order, yeah. Get the rest of this junk cleaned off of here. Yeah. Also, uh, let me see what was it. Oh, I want you to get both undercover cars serviced and ready to go. Okay. Okay, and you'll pick us up at the airport or take us to the airport at 8.30. Just in that clip alone, what I think is amazing is, A, the stilted dialogue. B, since there's no screenplay, Halicki, like, stops down with really useless information imparted to the guy he's talking to in front of the chalkboard. Like, you know, you'll have to redo this part of the chalkboard that I'm writing on. And also, you'll have to erase all the other stuff that's already written on the chalkboard. And then he actually forgets whether he's going to or getting picked up from the airport in the clip. And that's just exactly how the entirety of the film unfolds, where it's just brilliantly loose and kind of falling apart at the seams, even as it's being sewn together. I heard of this film through a sort of high-minded source, which is a documentary called Los Angeles Plays Itself. It's also referred to as a video essay because the director, Tom Anderson, is a film scholar and Los Angeles native and buff who has a theory that he lays out in this film, which is comprised almost entirely of scenes from films that use Los Angeles as a location. And his theory is that the influence of quote-unquote Hollywood, which he kind of makes a very compelling case, isn't a real thing, overshadows the reality of Los Angeles as a city and the people that actually live and work there. And he says that this theory is one of the reasons why in movie titles, the city's name is abbreviated. So he kind of makes this interesting case that there's something called quote unquote LA, which we see in films, and that the tropes of that LA in quotation marks actually have the opposite meaning to everyday real life Angelinos. And he kind of unfolds this amazing case that, you know, the modernist architecture that's prevalent in Los Angeles, which many people feel is one of the strengths and one of the interesting things and one of the cultural kind of high points of the city is often used as a shorthand to say an evil villain lives here because who else would live in these weird modernist monstrosity homes? The most celebrated episode in Hollywood's war against modern architecture is L.A. Confidential. Richard Neutra's Level House, the first great manifestation of the international style in Southern California, plays the home of Pierce Patchett, pornographer, pimp, prince of the shadow city, where whatever you desire is for sale. Actually, director Curtis Hansen greatly admires the Level House. Is it just a convention, then? The architectural trophy house is the modern equivalent of the black hat or the mustache. It's nothing to take seriously. Well, the architecture critic of the Los Angeles Times took it seriously. He cited L.A. Confidential as some kind of proof that the utopian aspirations of modernist architecture were bogus. He wrote... The house's slick, meticulous form seemed the perfect frame for that kind of power. Neutra's glass walls open up to expose the dark side of our lives. They suggest the erotic, the broken, the psychologically impure. 
So now we know. As the movies have shown, these pure modern machines for better living were dens of vice. In fact, this fiction is contradicted not only by the original spirit of the Lovell House, but by its entire history. It was designed as a kind of manifesto for natural living, and it became a center for radical left-wing political meetings in the 30s. And it's, an, it's a brilliant documentary. It really made me second-guess a lot of films that I actually love and hold dear. I had an interesting experience with it because I had recently been rereading uh, during the winter part of the pandemic, a lot of James Elroy books. And I had read all of the books that, that comprise uh, the LA Confidential series and LA Confidential itself. And I rewatched the film of LA Confidential, which I've always loved. And having just finished the books and being so immersed in Elroy's world, it kind of came up short for me for the first time because I was so aware of the depth and the layered characters that Elroy had, you know, put in these thousands of pages of, of linked novels. And of course, you can't get that on the screen, and I'm aware of that. But after watching uh, Anderson's film, oh man, he, the film is almost his perfect test case for everything that he says, you know, Hollywood kind of gets wrong about Los Angeles as a city, right down to the locations and the types of homes being used for the villains, uh, Pierce Paget's home, very modernist. Uh, so, you know, listen, I still think that the brutal humor of Russell Crowe's performance, the subtle brokenheartedness of Kevin Spacey's doomed and co-opted detective characters are still highlights of that film. But Anderson's right that you know, when L.A. is in the title of a movie, you should have your guard up a little bit. And if you watch his documentary, I think it'll change the way you you view films going forward in a good way. It, it's kind of like he's really interested in wrestling the truth to the ground. And he's going to rattle your cage a little bit while doing so. But I think that's a good thing in this time that we're living in. So if you do watch Los Angeles Plays Itself, keep a pen and paper handy or... If you're younger than 50, your phone, so you can jot down the names of all the films you're going to want to watch that he references in the film. That's how I came to be aware of the original Gone in 60 Seconds. So there's some there's there's not a lot about the making of the original Gone in 60 Seconds on the internet. I found, you know, maybe one article and then a great interview, screenwriting interview with Ronald D. Moore, who I guess is known for Battlestar Galactica. And he tells some amazing stories about being involved in writing Gone in 60 Seconds 2, which Toby Hillicky decided to make some years after the original. Apparently the original, which he'd made for about $100,000, $150,000. Toby was a car thief. Toby financed the original Gone in 60 Seconds. He told me this, and the guys around him told me this, uh, by stealing cars. Stole cars, financed the movie himself for like $100,000 change, you know, 150000 something like that in 74. He was a maniac. He was like an uber guerrilla filmmaker that would literally do things like take a bunch of cones and some cars and go down to Long Beach and block off the road and do a stunt and then pick up all the cones and get away before the police showed up. And he did this whole movie, uh, distributed him himself, he financed it himself, put it out there in the days when you could really do that as an independent filmmaker, and it made millions. It made millions internationally for him. He made an insane amount of money from because he owned it. So it, it did incredibly well around the world. I don't know if he made $4 million or $40 million, but it made a lot of money. And Toby Hillicky, tragically, ironically, was killed during the filming of 
Gone in 60 Seconds 2 when, unfortunately, perhaps typically, he had rigged up this incredible stunt, which involved a water tower that was going to collapse. And uh, unfortunately, the water tower actually collapsed on him. So what happened was they do the water tower stunt. And the plan was, here's the water tower on these four legs. The plan is, cut this leg all the way through, put a fake one in here. Tractor trailer comes flying in, hits the fake leg, and at that moment, they had these big cables tied to the top of the water tower running to a bulldozer over here and a bulldozer over there. And at that moment, the bulldozers would chug forward and they would pull the whole water tower over. Okay, action, tractor trailer comes in, leg goes out, nothing, doesn't happen. Can't pull this thing over. It was built, you know, in the teens when they built these things to last. So, you know, Toby and his buddies from the welding shop go out and look at the water tower. Hmm, what should we do? So, they decide, maybe we should start cutting this leg. Cut it almost all the way through, put a pin in it, and at the right moment we'll yank the pin and pull the tower over. So, they get the cutting torches and they start cutting on the leg. And at this very moment, news crew from, from local station comes to do an interview with Toby. And they're interviewing him, like a, a shot, tight shot on him, but right behind him is the water tower. And you can see sparks coming off the leg as the boys are cutting away. And Toby's looking into the camera and saying, When I lose the tractor trailer, which is what I'm supposed to be driving, I hit the tower with it, it comes down. I did the helicopter liftoff where I'm hanging from the helicopter, and he drops me on top of a building. When this is all over, I am going to sue the city of Dunkirk because they made me take out a $10 million insurance policy to indemnify the city, and I have never had an accident on any of my sets. And you just feel like the hand of God starting to move somewhere in the heavens. And they, they stop the interview, and the, the, the news crew is no sooner left than suddenly the tower comes down. And the tower isn't actually what killed him, in point of fact. In front of the water tower, there were these two telephone poles on either side that didn't have any wire on them because they had taken it all down when the factory was abandoned. But Toby, always striving for authenticity in every way, decided to string wire between the telephone poles so it looked like real. So what happened was the water tower collapses prematurely and it came down, it catches the telephone wire and the wire pulls over a telephone pole which landed on Toby's head. And he was the only guy even injured in the entire production. It was an unbelievable case of karma in some weird way that just came back around and and that was the end of of the strange tale of Toby Hallecky. And so he was killed before he could bring that movie to fruition. And then his story veers off into just in a six degree of separation bizarreness. His ex-wife uh, ended up dating O.J. Simpson friend and attorney Robert Kardashian, father of the Kardashians, and eventually ended up licensing the property for the remake that was made with Nick Cage and Angelina Jolie in 2000. So that is just one of those little blip films that I love in Hollywood history that is is really worth checking out. And Anderson loved it and mentions it many, many times in the documentary because it's one of the films that he feels 
gets Los Angeles right because of its use of practical locations and its, I guess, probably also the appearance of everyday people since they're sort of standing on the side of the streets very obviously. Like, no, there's no crowd control officers keeping people out of harm's way. People are just standing there gawking at the insane pileup of police cars and other cars that Halicki had used to make the film. So I think Anderson likes the film because it's a real period snapshot of actual locations in Los Angeles without any of the usual Hollywood kind of myth-making or logos, you know, replaced in order to, you know, prevent anyone, anyone from suing. So in that regard, it stands as a great kind of period time capsule. Then I stumbled into a film from 1972 called Fear is the Key. And this is a really superlative British crime film set in Louisiana, starring a very compelling Barry Newman, who you might know from the cult film Vanishing Point, which incidentally was directed by Richard Serafian, who happens to be, or happened to be, Robert Altman's brother-in-law. And the films of Robert Altman is another rabbit hole I've been going down lately, but that's another episode of the podcast for later. Anyway, Fear is the Key is a flat-out brilliant film in almost all regards. I don't know where I heard of this. I probably heard of it on some of the Facebook crime film forums that I belong to. I should have noted down to give proper credit for whoever turned me on to this film. But, man, this is a film right from the get-go, oodles of period style, minimalistically but brilliantly filmed by the cinematographer Alex Thompson, who was nominated for an Academy Award for Excalibur in 1981. Other films shot by Thompson include uh, Year of the Dragon, Legend, Labyrinth, The Craze, Alien 3, let's not speak of it, Cliffhanger, Demolition Man, Executive Decision, and two Kenneth Branagh films, Hamlet and Love's Labor Lost. The film was directed by the late Michael Tuckner, who has an otherwise fairly, you know, TV-oriented directing career. And the film is the story of a man, John Talbot, who in the very sparse opening sequence is depicted communicating with a man and a woman aboard an airplane that's engaged in some kind of mission. We, we never quite learn what mission. And it becomes clear through the conversation that the woman is John Talbot's wife and that their young son is also present on board. In the middle of their conversation over the radio, Talbot and we, the audience, hear the sound of another plane machine gunning the Talbot plane out of the sky and that plane crashing. And then we push into Talbot's tortured face listening to this and we fade to black. I mean, it's a, it's a gonzo gangbuster opening sequence. I was like, I am all in. And I'm not going to spoil what happens next, but suffice it to say that one of the things I most admire about this film is its confidence to kind of just unfold without holding your hand as an audience member. You're not really going to know what's going on until the midway point and the back third of the film, but that's what makes it so great. It, it's novelistic, and that's not surprising. The film was adapted from a book by prolific Scottish crime author Alistair MacLean. It's got an incredible supporting cast of its time. Dean Wormer himself, John Vernon, in odiously top growling form as a ruthless mastermind. And 80s children, let's give it up for Gimme a Break's Dolph Sweet. He's got such a great and surprising turn, as does Ben Kingsley, of all people, in his very first film role. 
Uh, so it's fun to watch Ben Kingsley because when you think of someone that went on to have the career that he went on to have, you're going to want to look at a small supporting role like this and sort of parse it and say, is there any evidence of that thing, that Ben Kingsley greatness in this this small supporting role? I'll, I'll let you be the judge of that when you see it. It is a crackingly good caper film. And Barry Newman as the star, really compelling action star. He's kind of like if James Caan and 70s porn icon Jamie Gillis stepped into the chamber from The Fly and emerged as a new merged human being. That's kind of what Barry Newman reminds me of. He's kind of virile, but also kind of menschy. So it's a funny combination. One of the best things about the film is the score. We've talked previously on the pod about British composer Roy Budd and his iconic score for the ur-gangster film Michael Caine's 1971 Get Carter. His score for that is just forever. Well, one year later, Bud scored this film. And if it lacks kind of Get Carter's throbbing and unforgettable groove or riff, it's it does have all these incredible moments with strings and horns and funky bass lines and great shuffled drum beats. It's just... score, I went and bought it immediately after I finished watching the film because I was like, this music, I, I want to play this music. I want to I form a band to play this music. It's that good. So just a couple quick crime recommendations there for you. I will be back soon with guests on the pod. If you're listening, Joseph, you know who you are. Get in touch. Let's do this. Coming up soon on the pod, 
we'll discuss Peter Bogdanovich's directorial debut, courtesy of B-movie legend Roger Corman. I want to do a dive into some of the films of Robert Altman, a book about whom I'm just finishing right now. And one of the movies has an incredible kind of true crime component. I'm thinking of maybe stopping down and doing little mini episodes on those. We'll see if that comes together and much more as the world continues to reopen. So thank you once again for listening to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Thank you for participating on Instagram, which is really the beating heart of the pod and the images and the films that inspire it. And also the gathering place for a little bit of a mutual appreciation society that I've been enjoying with a handful of people who really get the podcast and reach out and share interesting things uh, with me and me with them. So thank you to everyone. Stay safe, watch good movies, talk to you soon.